Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So in the last episode, if you recall, we talked a little bit about the United States Supreme Court, just this consistent string of decisions redounding to conservative interests. But we really wanted to kind of just go a little more in depth and record a special edition SCOTUS episode about the term that was. So we are looking back now at the past two weeks. And to just reiterate the top line 35,000 foot altitude conclusion here. This has been a term unlike any other in recent memory, perhaps unlike any other, well, I shouldn't say perhaps, I should say definitely, perhaps like any other in my adult lifetime, probably a term unlike any other since the foundation of the original conservative legal movement and its modern manifestation going back 40 to 45, 50 years or whatnot. And we want to just kind of go case by case and focus on some of these major high profile cases. And specifically, I want to talk today in the, right here at the outset, we'll talk about the Dobbs case, which has been, you know, it's been a recurring theme, a leitmotif on this show that, of course, famously is the case that has now overturned Roe versus Wade and its successor, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. We want to talk about a massive Second Amendment case out of New York State. That's the Bruin case. There have been two huge wins for religious liberty, a case called Carson out of Maine and a state called or in a case, excuse me, called Kennedy out of Washington State. And then if we have time, we're going to also touch on a case called West Virginia versus EPA, which has huge ramifications or at least potentially huge ramifications in the area of administrative law. So let's just start diving right in here. So the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case, again, we have talked about this on this podcast quite a bit. We even did an entire special edition episode about the fact that the draft majority opinion from this case was leaked in unprecedented fashion. Aside, we still don't know who leaked it, which is utterly egregious. I kind of half expected them to announce it the day that the term was over, but in fact, they have not done that. So we'll come back to that if we have time, because just that that in and of itself is still crazy to me. But let's not lose the forest from the trees here. So the Dobbs case did what the draft opinion said it would do. Pretty remarkable stuff. It really did overturn Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Now, look. I am a literally a literal car carrying member of the Federal Society, which is the chief institutional vessel for the modern conservative legal movement. I've been a member since my first year of law school at the University of Chicago. As I've probably mentioned on this show, I still go to some law schools time to time and give some lectures through the Federal Society. So I very much have kind of come of age, so to speak. I've matured through the legal conservative movement. This has been the goal. I cannot emphasize that enough. Literally going back to 1982, when the Federal Society was born and when the constitutional interpretive methodology that's often associated with the organization called originalism, since this really went into effect in the early 1980s and the early leading theorists were folks like the late Justice Antonin Scalia, the late Judge Bob Bork, 
Ed Meese, who was Ronald Reagan's attorney general and is actually still kicking it over at the Heritage Foundation, where, where our recent guest, Kevin Roberts, was the president. For, the, for, for those leading early era originalist theorists, I think it would be slightly exaggerating to, see the, to say that overturning Roe was the only goal, but it was probably the biggest goal of them all. Not probably, it was. And everyone understood that. I mean, it, this was not hiding the ball there. It was fairly out in the open that so much of the institutional efforts, so much of the so so much of the machinations over the past 20, 30 years have been geared towards this particular result. And I guess it's worth just emphasizing as well the fact that they did this amidst the unprecedented intimidation campaign. After the fact that this leaked opinion came out in early May, there were, you know, what CNN would call the mostly peaceful protests, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. They were not particularly peaceful many of the times, but they were outside the justice's home, whether it was Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, I think the Chief Justice Roberts, that is, had some folks outside of his home with the chalk and the signs, obviously culminating not just in these horrific firebombings of crisis pregnancy centers, which we saw, but obviously also in a literal assassination attempt that, thank God, was apparently aborted at the last second, no pun intended there, but this was an attempted assassination attempt against Justice Brett Kavanaugh, if you recall, just gruesome, gruesome macabre stuff. Thank God, obviously, that was not successful, but amidst this unprecedented assault on the court's legitimacy, its integrity, they stood strong. They stiffened their spine and they saw the deed through. And the opinion really did not change all that much. Some folks produced what lawyers will call a red line, which is just like a side-by-side -side comparison showing the changes that were made from the leaked draft to the ultimate final form of the opinion that was released. The actual substantive constitutional law did not change at all. It was decided on the exact same ground. So I guess we should probably go back a little bit then to first principles and just kind of briefly explain why it was that Roe and Casey were so erroneously decided. So to make an extremely obvious point, the act of interpreting the Constitution is not the same as legislating. It is not the same as making a law. The law itself means what it says. It's a fairly straightforward proposition. I mean, if the law doesn't mean what, it's, what it says, then why are we bothering to write down stuff in the first place? But in Roe versus Wade, building off of a case from eight years prior called Griswold versus Connecticut, the court took a so-called right to privacy that in Griswold it found in the emanations from the penumbras of the Ninth Amendment or the Bill of Rights or something. It wasn't really clear exactly what they were doing. And then eight years later in Roe, they extended it, this so-called right to privacy, which itself, uh, you, you know, I, I, I personally like my privacy. I mean, I support that on policy grounds for the most part, right? But uh, they took this kind of fabricated constitutional right, a right to privacy, and then extended it to the quote-unquote right to abort your unborn child. Now, decades and decades of folks from the right center and even really large swaths of even the intellectually honest left I think conceded that this decision rested on very shaky grounds. As, but two examples, John Hart Eli famously was a very liberal-leaning, pro-choice constitutional law professor at both Harvard and Stanford law schools. He famously said that Roe versus Wade, quote, is not constitutional law and gives almost no sense of an obligation to be constitutional law. 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself, of course, the, 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 the iconic progressive jurist, the, the notorious RBG, the historic trailblazing feminist lawyer for the ACLU before she was even on the federal bench. She even said that Roe went too far too fast because it deprived millions, tens of millions of well-intentioned, faithful, pro-life Americans the opportunity to have their voices heard. So the court doubled down on its on its disastrous row opinion 19 years later in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And one thing that's really funny about the reaction to the Dobbs case, which is written just like, just like the draft opinion by Justice Sam Alito, who clearly has a lot of courage, obviously, for uh, he, he and the other four justices, of course, that would be Justices Thomas, uh, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Gorsuch. Uh, the chief justice concurred in the judgment, so he concurred in, with the result on narrow grounds. But this result is a fundamentally democratizing act. And what I mean by that is it deconstitutionalizes, it takes away from the ambit of a constitutional right, a fabricated right, and simply returns it to we the people, which is where sovereignty and our constitutional order ultimately belongs. We the people, of course. That's what the preamble begins with, we the people. And this decision merely says that we the people, uh, acting through our duly enacted legislators and our state legislatures and our 50 state capitals and Washington, D.C., I suppose, the District of Columbia, that we can go ahead and calibrate exactly how we want to balance the competing interests between the moral salience, the moral gravitas of this unborn fetal life, and of course, the pregnant woman's liberty interest as well. That is all this opinion does. It kicks it back to the states. Again, it is a fundamentally democratizing act, but you wouldn't know that from the reactions from the left, obviously, who have had all sorts of kind of shrieks and bouts of hysteria. Oh, our democracy is at risk. Oh, the court has revealed itself to be totally illegitimate. Democratic backsliding, right? That's a common term that you hear oftentimes in, in the international context about countries like Hungary, Poland, and Brazil that are led by center-right leaders. So you hear this term democratic backsliding here. This makes a lot of sense only once you realize that when the left refers to our democracy, when they refer to kind of democracy in general here, what they're actually talking about is not any sort of procedures or rules or norms or customs that you and I might think of as being what a democracy or a republic is about for that matter. What they're getting at is a series, a litany of progressive liberal policy positions. So when they say our democracy is at risk, what they mean is our personal policy preferences are at risk here. But nonetheless, the Dobbs opinion has come out uh, Justice Thomas has has a concurrence where he would go a little further. He, he kind of excoriates the doctrine of substantive due process, which is this doctrine that the Roe case was based on. He kind of gets into greater length and just eviscerates it. But, you know, again, this is the white whale, guys. So the question really remains, where do we go from here now that the white whale has been caught? I have a new column in Newsweek up about that. We can talk about that a little bit later in the program. But for now, let's just throw it to a quick commercial break. Again, you're listening to The Josh Hammer Show. We're doing a SCOTUS special this week. Stay with us. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, Priceline. So another just huge, I, I don't think it's much of an exaggeration to say monumental case that came down from the U.S. Supreme Court just a day or two before the Dobbs case came down, I guess it was literally one day, was a massive Second Amendment case out of New York State, a case called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Now, in any other Supreme Court term, this would be the marquee case. This would be the case that everyone and their mother are talking about. Guns is a culture war issue if there ever were a culture war issue, right? The fact that it is not being discussed as much as it probably should be is, is simply a testament to the power that the court and the judiciary has had when it comes to abortion in particular and just the very thorny way that the culture war has been so associated with that particular issue. But it really doesn't get much more culture war than the guns issue either. And what happened here in, in the Bruin case, this is, a, this is a six to three ruling. It's written by Justice Clarence Thomas, who I have time and time again referred to as the single greatest living American. I'm really not even sure who would be second. I mean, maybe Thomas Sowell, uh, who's a great American, obviously, but I'd have to really think about that. But the question that was presented for the court in the Bruin case is basically what the scope of the phrase bear arms in the Second Amendment means. So to kind of take a step back a little bit here, in 2008, in a case called D.C. versus Heller, the court for the very first time in the history of the Republic established that keep arms, the right to keep arms in the Second Amendment means what it says. Pretty hard to believe, right, that it actually took them this long. The Bill of Rights was obviously ratified in 1791. Crazy. And it took them until 2008 to say that the Second Amendment actually means what it says. It was at the time it was a 5-4 decision. It was it was written by the late Justice Anthony Scalia, probably his signature originalist majority opinion. Maybe the legal nerds would say a Sixth Amendment case called Crawford, but for whatever my money's worth, I would say it's the Heller decision. Two years later, after Heller, in a case called McDonald versus Chicago, they quote unquote incorporate this right against the states, which basically means that not just the federal government, but also the states cannot infringe upon your right to keep arms. And then for a solid decade, after these two landmark cases in fairly quick succession, the Heller case and the McDonald case, the court didn't do anything. It, it was totally silent, and it actually repeatedly rejected cert petitions. So the Supreme Court obviously has a discretionary docket. You have to apply to have your appeal heard. They take a very small, marginal, even percentage of these cases. And they just consistently swatted down these appeals on the misguided, misbegotten notion that it would be that it would be it would be better for this issue in the aftermath of the Heller McDonald case to sort itself out at the federal trial court and circuit court of appeals levels. The problem, among other problems, is that first of all, you had a very chaotic, frenetic map where circuits like the Ninth Circuit, which obviously is the liberal leaning circuit based out in California, devised these ahistorical tests that basically kind of amounted to a means ends balancing act of sorts that had the that had the tangible effect of, of, of allowing judges to uphold basically any gun control restrictions they wanted to. But the overarching problem is that the Second Amendment's a real right, guys. 
I mean, this is like the theoretical, like more important point to make here. The Second Amendment is just as much a right as the First Amendment, as the First Amendment's protections, obviously, for religious liberty, which, which we'll talk about soon, for free free press, free speech, the, you know, just as much a right as your Fourth Amendment liberty against unreasonable searches and seizures, your Fifth Amendment right to not have to testify against yourself, to plead the Fifth, obviously, in court. So the overarching point here is that the Second Amendment is part of the Bill of Rights, whether the libs want it to be a part of the Bill of Rights or not. And that, in fact, actually is why the most intellectually honest among all the pro-gun control, anti-gun liberals, folks like the late Justice John Paul Stevens, who dissented in the Heller case, uh, Justice John Paul Stevens, way towards the end of his life, he actually had a New York Times op-ed after some horrific mass shooting, I can't remember which one exactly, where the title of his op-ed was actually, if I, if I recall, was Repeal the Second Amendment. So that is the intellectually honest answer. But nonetheless, we still have the Second Amendment. So in the Bruin case, Justice Thomas, in this beautiful 63-page thoroughly well-researched, deeply historically rooted majority opinion, basically says that, no, you have a right not just to keep arms, but to bear arms. And he kind of walks through the history of carrying firearms in America, whether it's concealed carry, whether it's open carry. Fun aside, by the way, back in the day, I mean, way before anyone who was listening to this podcast was born, open carry actually used to be way more common than concealed carry. I mean, I think back to like your images of the old Wild West, right? I mean, walking around, you know, you would you, you would carry a gun when law enforcement was few and far between, when you had no idea how long the sheriff would take in a pre-internet, even a pre-telephone era. In fact, back in the day, concealed carry actually had somewhat of a behavioral stigma attached to it because a lot of vandals and thieves would actually conceal carry. I say that, by the way, as someone who has had a concealed carry permit um, in, in modern times now for six years or so, so I don't mean to besmirch any contemporary concealed carriers. That's just kind of the, the, his, the historical color to this. But in this majority opinion, Justice Thomas says that New York State's concealed carry licensing regime is unconstitutional because what New York State and six other states required is that an applicant show proper cause or some sort of very similar requirement to that in order to get a license. These are what uh, the, the gun rights literature refers to as so-called may issue states because government bureaucrats have the discretion to only may maybe issue you a permit in these states. That's in contrast to shall issue states, which is where the government has no choice but to issue you a permit, assuming that you can kind of go through the required trainings and firearms trainings and safety course, target practice, whatever. None of that is touched by this opinion. So the actual opinion here has the effect of upending New York State's proper cause requirements to carry a firearm and every other blue state's proper cause may issue licensing regime for firearms to the extent that they have that. But the other thing that I just want to quickly note, and I wrote my column on this a couple of weeks ago, this is, to date, the signature majority opinion for Justice Thomas, who was so often, due to no fault of his own, found himself writing in dissent over the past 30 years. He's been on the court now for 30 and a half years. He's oftentimes been surrounded, obviously, by liberals and centrists, moderates who he has disagreed with. He has lacked a truly career-defining majority opinion, and at least as of now, this is it. It's a, it's, a, it's a remarkable, wonderful opinion on a, on a culturally, civilizationally salient issue. Affirmative action comes before the court next term, so you know keep your eyes and ears open for that. That's a longtime bugaboo for Justice Thomas. But for now, this is really just a terrific, terrific opinion as a 
you know, gun rights enthusiast myself, I am certainly celebrating this one. And it really does deserve more attention than it is currently getting because of the Dobbs case overshadowing everything. But let's take it to another quick commercial break. Again, this is Josh Hammer. We'll be right back with more from the Supreme Court. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So if those two very weighty, culturally relevant issues were not enough for you. Well, we actually have had some massive, massive, I would even, I would say doctrine shifting wins over the past couple of weeks when it comes to the issue of religious liberty. So quick bit of professional background for those of you who are not familiar. So uh, in a previous lifetime, I actually was of counsel at First Liberty Institute, which is a Texas-based nonprofit religious liberty law firm. They were actually counsel on two of these recent cases that we're about to talk about there. So I just want to, you know, I, I want to spend like a, a little time here just congratulating my friends and former colleagues there at First Liberty for a job well freaking done here. And the two cases in particular that First Liberty was on was, the first was a case at, a, at the state of Maine called Carson versus Macon. The second case was a case out of Washington State called Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. This is what's commonly been referred to as the so-called Coach Kennedy case. So the case out of Carson versus Macon, basically what happened is the state of Maine is a very rural state. And a lot of these rural areas in Maine do not have full soup to nuts public school districts. So as a possible Remedy for that, the state of Maine has long had a program of tuition assistance for parents who live in school districts that do not operate a secondary school or a high school or, or, or so forth. And since at least the 1980s, Maine has limited this tuition assistance program. Basically, what I'm saying is they limited what the money that the taxpayer money that parents have to send their children to school, they limited they limited it to quote unquote non-sectarian schools. So put another way, they basically limited it to quote unquote secular schools and not religious schools. There are a lot of problems with this, obviously. First of all, a lot of this is actually intellectually downstream of what in the late 19th century were referred to as Blaine Amendments. So the Blaine Amendment, which was originally proposed as an amendment to the federal constitution, it was shot down, and then it kind of popped up in a lot of the states, was basically motivated by rank anti-Catholic bigotry, actually. That's very straightforward, exactly what it was. And at the time, this was kind of pushed by a, a lot of Protestants who just didn't want their taxpayer money going to fund Catholic education. At the time, there was like a huge, you know, people were very concerned at the time, especially about, about Irish immigration, perhaps to, to a lesser extent, Italian immigration was starting in the late 19th century. But it, re it really has a very sordid provenance, a very sordid origin, a lot of this kind of anti-Catholic bigotry here. And basically what happened is, is the, the Supreme Court in Carson said that, said that Maine can't do this, that this is a violation of the free exercise clause. And that the parents of Maine, once you make a once you make a generally available benefit 
available to the public, which you don't have to do, obviously. There is no, there's no requirement that a Maine or any state enact a program like this for tuition assistance. But the key insight is that once you enact a program like this, you cannot discriminate against religious schools or religious institutions in favor of secular schools or secular institutions. It's a very similar holding, frankly, to a case two years ago at a Montana case called Espinoza versus Montana, where the court had a very, very similar ruling about another kind of Blaine Amendment-esque uh, state policy at that time. It also follows directly from a 2017 case called Trini Lutheran out of the state of Missouri that basically did the same thing, very similar fact patterns here. And the the breakdown of the court has been similar in all these cases, six to three. So in Chief Justice Roberts' mild defense, and he is you know nothing if not fickle and capricious, in his limited defense, he does seem to consistently side, on, or not consistently, but he's, more often than not, he sides on the right side of these religious liberty issues. So I want to, I actually want to take a step back here after we review the Kennedy case and kind of talk about the Establishment Clause and so-called separation of church and state. But let's, let's first quickly discuss this case at a Washington state called Kennedy. So Coach Kennedy was a high school football coach who was fired after kneeling at midfield after football games to offer a quiet personal prayer. Now, if you're sitting there kind of shaking your head, being like, huh, how is that exactly a fireable offense? How is that exactly unconstitutional in a country founded by the Declaration of Independence, which repeatedly makes reference to our creator? In a country where the very first president, George Washington, was effusive in his public invocations of God and, and religiosity. Go ahead and read President Washington's Thanksgiving Day proclamation, the reason that to this day we have a Thanksgiving holiday. It, it was literally, it was overtly religious, actually. He was literally beseeching the Almighty for blessings. It was, it was a day to give thanks, not necessarily to kind of, you know, Joe next door, Joe the plumber next door. It was, it was to give thanks to the deity, to give thanks to God himself. So the Coach Kennedy case, ends up getting litigated here. And, uh, you know, same thing, 6-3 victory. Um, Roberts sides on the correct time again. Really, really, really nice majority opinion this time from Justice Neil Gorsuch. And this case more directly afflicts, or more directly affects, I should say, the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. And the Establishment Clause basically says, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. The problem here is that people have misinterpreted this for a very long time to fabricate this idea of quote-unquote separation of church and state. Now, you'll notice that that's not actually in the text that I just recited to you. The idea of a wall of separation between church and state has its origin in a 233-word letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury, Connecticut Baptists in 1802. It was, not a, it was not adopted into the Supreme Court rhetoric and jurisprudence until a case called Everson 145 years later in 1947. In, in fact, actually, for decades and decades after the time of the American founding, after the ratification of the Bill of, Bill of Rights, many of the states had established churches. Uh, South Carolina had an established church, the Anglican Church at the time of the American founding, yeah, Massachusetts. I mean, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts had an established church as late as 1833. The state of Connecticut, I think, was actually possibly even later than that. So th this idea that it is somehow unconstitutional for a coach to silently offer like a 30 to 60 second prayer because he happened to be on school property is Looney Tunes bat crap crazy stuff here. 
And the Kennedy case in particular, the court finally clarified that it overruled an erroneous 1971 case called Lemon versus Kurtzman. Again, I used to work at First Liberty. I was of counsel there. I can tell you guys, overturning Lemon is a big freaking deal. The so-called Lemon test was this four-step concocted, ridiculous, judge-made test that was trying to figure out when something involving religion in the public square may or may not have been an establishment clause violation. It, it, it came out of absolutely nowhere. It, it, you know, the, the steps are like, did this, does this have the effect of endorsing religion? Does it get uh, inextricably entangled in religion? N none of this is textual, okay? It is literally just pure sophistry, just pure judge-made crap with an emphasis on crap. And we finally are finally are starting to peel back from that. The Kennedy case formally overrules Lemon, which again, similar to the Second Amendment case brewing out of New York State, you know, in a different term, in a different Supreme Court term, this would have been like the biggest case. And sure enough, you know, the the dissents in these religious liberty cases have have been hysterical. I mean, uh, Sotomayor has a dissenting opinion. Breyer has a dissenting opinion. Stephen Breyer, by the way, has now formally retired. He retired noon, the last day of the term. He has been replaced by Katanji Brown-Jackson. We will see where that goes. I'm not exactly optimistic about her career, but I guess we shall see. But in any other term, overturning Lemon would be a big freaking deal. Again, just the 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 power that the abortion issue has had for decades when it comes to the Supreme Court just tends to overshadow everything at this point. But these are huge wins for religious liberty. There was actually another win. It was actually a 9-0 win a couple months ago, a case out of Massachusetts called Shirtleft versus City of Boston, which was yet another win for, for religious liberty. So what happened here was the City of Boston has some program where organizations can petition to fly their flags from uh, from City Hall, from City Hall Plaza. And they accepted everyone, except for a Christian group that I guess had a cross or a crucifix, they got denied. And the Supreme Court said in a 9-0 opinion that you can't do this. And again, the logic, the rationale is, the, is very similar to this Carson versus Macon case in a Maine that I was just describing to you. The point is when you have a public square like a literal public square as the city hall example may be, or a proverbial public square as Maine's tuition assistance program may be, when you establish some sort of public square, you cannot discriminate against religion in favor of secularism. But that was the original sin of the separation of church and state establishment clause jurisprudence in the, in the first place, was people kind of overly interpreted this language so strongly that it led them to believe that religious people had no role whatsoever in the town square. None. And it resulted in just rank discrimination so often against religious people. Well, I want to read you actually an excerpt from a speech given in 2006. This is a speech by a former senator you might have heard of, a Democrat from Illinois by the name of Barack Obama. He gave a Senate floor speech in 2006 where he said, quote, Secularists are wrong when they ask believers to leave their religion at the door before entering into the public square. Secularists are wrong when they ask believers to leave their religion at the door before entering into the public square. So to say that men and women should not inject their, quote, personal morality into public policy debates is a practical absurdity. 
Our law is by definition a codification of our morality. Much of it which is grounded in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Pretty crazy stuff. I mean, that's not Jerry Falwell. That's not Pat Robertson. I mean, heck, that's not Josh Hammer. That is Barack Obama. By the way, even kind of the rhetoric of the word secularist there, crazy. I mean, I, I think today no one would think that any liberal Democrat in the right mind would kind of use the phrase secularist. So very interesting. But again, job well done for the United States Supreme Court overturning the 1947 case called Everson that I mentioned, which was the first time that the rhetoric of separation of church and state made it into a Supreme Court opinion. That, re that goal remains elusive. But for the time being, these are huge, huge wins in the realm of religious liberty. So Yet again, similar to Dobbs and Bruin, job well done. Let's take it to another quick commercial break. We'll be right back with more of the Supreme Court special. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So they did save two major cases for the final day of the term. So conservatives and libertarians, for that matter, actually had a, a yet another big win in a in a case called West Virginia versus EPA, which had the effect of massively cabining the discretion that the Environmental Protection Agency has to implement the Clean Power Plan that was described by the Obama administration. The court now, in a series of administrative law cases, has referred to the so-called major questions doctrine. And what that means in a nutshell is when you have an industry or economy shifting regulation in mind, which is similar to what the EPA has done when it comes to kind of fossil fuels and coal and, and all of that, you, be, you better be damn well sure that you have very, very clear congressional statutory authorization to do that or else it's presumptively unconstitutional. It's kind of similar to what the late Justice Scalia said. He had a famous quip from the 1990s where he famously said, Congress does not hide elephants in mouse holes. Put another way, you can't find this massive, massive, massive power buried deep, deep in the belly of some very arcane, obscure statutory subsection. Very similar, by the way, actually to, and this actually, this was the major questions doctrine as well, that decided the OSHA case, the vaccine mandate case that you might remember from this past December. It was actually decided on the exact same legal grounds, if I recall. I haven't read the decision in a few months, but if I recall, that was also a major questions doctrine thing where the administration claimed to divine this right buried deep in, in the OSHA Act from the Nixon administration. Just crazy, crazy stuff. So West Virginia versus EPA was, was a big case. Now, it, it, is, it is worth noting that, uh, you know, our side did lose uh, one, one major case on the last day of the term. Uh, it's, a t it's kind of a technical loss, but it's a loss nonetheless in a case called Biden versus Texas. The state of Texas basically sued on behalf of the Biden administration, or I should say the state of Texas sued the Biden administration for rescinding the Trump administration's remain in Mexico policy, which by really any measure based on what Border Patrol agents have said time and time again, DHS, that really was probably the single most effective policy pertaining to immigration the Trump administration put into place. 
people can have tried to like directly correlate the implementation of that policy with with uh, d- decreased illegal border crossings. It basically meant that for presumptively unlawful migrants, you had to wait in Mexico before you had your asylum hearing. The, the only alternative to remain in, remain in Mexico is catch and release, which basically means when you arrive at the border, they will find you and then arrest you, or excuse me, they, and then they will basically just let you off into the interior of the country and you can show up for your hearing and you know, you you don't have to be a PhD in sociology, let alone a lawyer, to know that. Well, most of most of most of people are not going to show up. So anyway, so this was a loss, but it, it's a fairly narrow loss. It's a very weird opinion, to be honest with you. It was not necessarily decided on the grounds that, that I expected it to be decided on. The case now goes back to Judge Matthew Kazmarek, who's a Texas District Court judge. Uh, Matthew Kazmarek is, is is an excellent judge, and the opinion makes clear that they have not actually opined yet on whether what happened here in the Biden administration trying to rescind the Remain in Mexico policy in its October 2020 in its October 2021 memo they have not yet ruled as to whether the process for rescinding this regulation violates the Administrative Procedure Act, which is kind of the touchstone of all administrative law. So it's a lot of legalese. What that basically means is like probably the biggest question out there in this case actually has not been ruled upon yet. So we'll see where that goes. Okay, so as we get closer here towards the end of the show, I want to take a step back. We've now just spent some time kind of going deep in some of these big cases here. And look, I say that, by the way, as someone who has kind of come of age in this movement as really quite a cynic and a pessimist on all things judicial branch, all things judiciary related. For years and years, I have been saying that the judiciary is a one-way ratchet that will inherently redound to progressive outcomes. I've cited things like the greenhouse effect. So the New York Times had a Supreme Court reporter known as Linda Greenhouse. I actually think she's still reporting. I haven't read something by her in years, but I think she's still kicking it. And she, this term comes from something that she wrote in the 1990s, where she basically noted that Republican nominated judges, justices to the U.S. Supreme Court over the, over the course of their tenure on the court, inevitably tend to shift to the left, never to the center, never to the right just to the left. Uh, obviously, there have been some exceptions, Justice Clarence Thomas, Justice Anthony Scalia, Justice Sam Alito. But to the extent that any judge shifts over the course of his or her tenure, it's always to the left, always. So I kind of cited that rule of thumb over and over again to basically argue that the judiciary is one-way ratchet. And I think a lot of us now have to spend the next few months really kind of soberly contemplating just how just how wrong we were. Now, I don't want to overstate it, okay? I don't want to overstate it. These are big victories, but they are only victories. I mean, like we have not like won necessarily the long game yet. And what I mean by that is take the take the example of abortion in particular here. So the Dobbs case, all that does again is it just kicks the issue back to the states. It just it just returns us to the neutral status quo ante that preceded Roe versus Wade. That's all it does. The case out of Washington, the Coach Kennedy case, in overturning Lemon versus Kurtzman, and the you know the case out of Maine, the Carson case, where they've reiterated this idea that you cannot discriminate against religious people, all these cases do, again, is take us back to a neutral playing field where religious people and religion itself cannot be discriminated against. So all we have actually done is get back to a neutral level playing field here. So I actually want to read to you then what I wrote in my last Newsweek column towards the end. I was merely trying to be a little provocative. Uh, those who know me well know that I 
like that, that I like stirring the pot, that I like trying to kind of stir up conversation here. So I, 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 the title of this column was, quote, after Dobbs, what comes next for the conservative legal project? And here is how I concluded it. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to read to you guys the final three paragraphs of this column. In both of these doctrinal areas, referring to abortion and religious liberty, the goal has merely been some sort of neutrality. But neutrality is an uninspiring goal for a political movement. The proper long-term goal is not neutrality, but victory. The time for playing jurisprudential and judicial defense is thus over. The time is now right for legal and judicial conservatives to go on offense. At a theoretical level, that means more widespread adoption of quote-unquote common good originalism, which is a strand of originalist jurisprudence I have proposed that is both less wedded to dispositional shibboleths about judicial restraint and more assertive about its substantive overarching orientation toward justice, human flourishing, and the common good of the polity. On abortion, that means properly interpreting the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause to actually ban abortion nationally. We'll get into that in just a sec. On public religion, that means bolstering America's traditional ecumenical Christianity once and for all and delivering a fatal blow to the ahistorical misnomer of quote-unquote separation of church and state, which has no textual basis in the First Amendment and instead derives from a 233-word letter Thomas Jefferson once wrote, blah, blah, blah. We, we, we said this earlier. The concluding paragraph, quote, justice, justice shall you pursue, reads Deuteronomy 16.20. Not proceduralism, that is, but justice, the rewarding of good and the punishing of evil within the confines of the rule of law. The modern conservative legal movement just had its most successful Supreme Court term. Now it's time for real, meaningful justice. So again, the takeaway there is we have now had this movement that just had its most successful term to date. But in a lot of different areas, if you look at it carefully, all we've been fighting for is neutrality. We've been fighting from a defensive posture after the Warren Court of mid-century, after the Burger Court after these liberal activist courts fabricated all these faux constitutional rights, the modern conservative legal project has basically just been to kind of undo the crap that was done. But going forward, we should be on the assertive here. So to, to, abortion, again, is, is, you know, it's one of many, but it's a very good example. Many of us for a few years now have argued that the Equal Protection Clause properly construed when it refers to equal protection of persons actually does include natural unborn persons which would have the practical effect, actually, of banning abortion in America, at least wherever a homicide statute is in place, which is obviously in every state. So these are the kind of, I think, creative, offensive-minded litigation and judicial strategies that we have to be thinking of going forward here. But I do want to just emphasize, as, as we wrap up this Supreme Court special episode, for now, kudos. Job well done. Job well done to the Federal Society. Job well done to President Trump, majority or former majority leader, current minority leader Mitch McConnell. This has been a heck of a term. We'll see what happens next term. It's very difficult to conceive of what a term better than this current one looks like. But I think I speak for many, many conservatives right now when I say that I am just really, really happy. And I'm surprised at how happy I am. I'm surprised at how good this term was. But it really is just a joyous occasion right now. So job well done to everyone. But on that note, we are out of time. Again, I'm Josh Hammer. We will see you next time. <laughs>